Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy, and each week I sit down with an expert from the biggest sporting names in the world to Buddhist monks, neuroscientists, psychologists, and philosophers. We discuss a theme that tells us something insightful and important about life and how best to live it. From the importance of self-acceptance to facing addiction and developing resilience, right through to getting your circadian rhythms in sync and how to sleep better. Sport is a metaphor for life. And in this podcast, I aim to prove that right. I always like hearing from you. So the best way to get in touch is via my website, simonmundy.com or I'm at Simon Mundy on social media. In this episode, I'm talking to the former England cricket captain, Alastair Cook, about the importance of hard work. So, Alastair Cook, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. It's an absolute delight having you on Don't Tell Me The Score. Thank you very much for coming on. No, thanks. <laughs> Do you say Don't Tell Me The Score? That's the name of the podcast. Oh, I thought you said Don't Tell Me The Score. I'd be flicking to see whether you're going to watch the highlights later. No. They're 68 for two. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, thanks very much for coming on. And you're making history because I've had dames, but you're the first sir. Ah, that's good. You're, that's not, good. The fir- you're not the first England cricket captain, though. Who else have you had? The captain's captain. Jeez. Skipper Strauss. No. Vaughan. Earlier, 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 earlier. Vaughan. 81. Oh, really? Mike Brearley. Ah. Yeah, I had him on about leadership um, and he was fascinating. Oh, yeah. I, like, I've met him a couple of times and you can see his brain working. Like Every time he talks to you about anything, he's like, like every answer you give him, he's like, 
oh, you, have I given him the right answer there? Yeah, <laughs> like, it gives you that kind of a feeling. He's slow, he's measured. Yeah. And, and I tell you what, what I find interesting about Mike as well is that I've um, covered many cricket matches and obviously a lot of old pros behind the scenes at Lords or whatever else. And I've always wondered why he wasn't there. And the fact that he built this career in yeah. psychoanalysis was uh, amazing. Um, so, read your book, loved it. Thank you. Loads of things leap out, but one thing that, that I, I want to start with is is that when you said, way back when, I think it was when you were first picked for England, that you were excited to hear your name on Radio 1. Yeah, that was one of the, the a strange moment. Like, you know how, you know, you listen to it, I, was, I think I was, well, I mean, I'd been 21, and I got called up to go to Pakistan um, as a replacement in 2005, and I, I, was, I had... I got the list. I got like you're going to go yeah. tomorrow, and you need this, this, this. The, your kit will be there. I needed a pair of black shoes. I didn't, you know, didn't have a, own a decent pair of black shoes. I went to go and buy black shoes and um, pick my wife up. And well, it wasn't my wife then; it was a girlfriend. And we went shopping. It was on Radio One, and they said, "Oh, and Alistair Cook has been called up to, to join the England squad." I was like, oh, "That's that's quite cool, actually." Surreal moment. Well, here's yeah. here's the interesting thing, right? So. Well, interesting from my point of view. So I have, basically, I reckon I've said your name on Radio 1 more than anyone else. Really? Yeah. So I'm, I have been the Radio 1 sports sport during your whole tenure. Oh. I started, literally started when you absolutely bossed things down under and then right the way through to your retirement. So oh. I, I can't tell you Good how many well. times I've talked about Alistair Cook, Captain Cook, all that stuff. And then that does lead me to the question. Looking back now, so you're a sir, you've been knighted, right? You've got all these records. You finish your career in this absolutely fairy tale way do you look back and think okay that lad who heard his name on radio one and was thrilled do you ever sort of sit back and reflect okay how impressed he would be or how <laughs> grateful rather he would be with with what you went on to achieve i think if you'd have told me that day that i was going to have a half decent career and play for 12 years you know i would have surprised me it was just yeah, I, I, I've, for 12 years, I've lived the dream. Yes, there's been moments in that dream which has been hard and there's been uh, and some tough moments, but you know, you look back and think, yeah, that's a, I was lucky to experience that. And uh, do you reflect? Are you, are you one of the people who would look um, back and say, you know, if it was that guy? Yeah, I, 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 I suppose I, I, this, I started over the last year to reflect more than I ever have done. I think is that when, you are, when, you, when you're a player and you're... You're always driving forward. You're always mm. I, well. I was always striving for the next game, the next innings, the next time I can make an impact. And I always, I always was massively worried about mother cricket. I always thought mother cricket would always, she'd always bite you if you never, you know, respected the game. And if I'd scored runs or, you know, in a certain series, if I didn't work hard the next day, she'd go, "Oh, you're taking your foot off. I'll give you a couple of low, low scores to do it." And so I rarely look back. I rarely look back when I was playing. I was always dry, striving. What's the next challenge? What's the next thing? I think over the last year, because that end goal of playing for England, which I always had pretty much um, from a really early age, is no longer there. I think it's given me that time and of reflection. I do have started to look back, and I have started to kind of watch a bit of my old stuff just out of curiosity really and yeah. uh, like interest yeah doesn't uh, don't blame me and there's some amazing highlights uh, many of which like i said i've been uh, lucky enough to report on now in in the, in your book right so, uh, some really key names so we've got alice obviously your wife elsie isabel jimmy your love affair mm. with jimmy as well you, got to, you can't remember jack the little boy <laughs> oh jack, the little boy as we call him the boy <laughs> the jack. boy Gucci, yeah, bar, your sheep, but well, no, so bar, yeah. Let's be careful about bar. Like bar was around for a little bit. It was just okay. one, of, one of those like someone it touched your heart. Well, I just thought it was if someone could actually see 
probably the England captain shouting bar on a field <laughs> of 200 sheep and the sheep runs up to you say hello I think the reason like a little nice antidote I, the last thing I'd want to do is to ever say the farm was like a pet farm but yeah. it was, it was, I thought it was quite a nice little indication yeah. that you, you can half train sheep which is quite strange <laughs> absolutely but I don't want to talk about any of them okay. the first person I want to talk about or first name I want to talk about is the gimp oh. now, so, this is so you talk about having a breakthrough moment and basic where you, yeah, you... This is not the Pulp Fiction gimp, though. Let's just, let's just, <laughs> no, can yeah. we just clear, let's clear that up. Yeah, for we... anyone with an awkward image in yeah. their head, it's nothing like that. So why don't you explain what then what the gimp is? Uh, so the gimp started off for me, um, it, well, it has been there pretty much all my cricketing life. The, the bloke who sits on your, your shoulder and, and basically calls you strife for no apparent reason, but because he thinks it's, it's quite good fun. And I suppose you look at that and it's a bloke doubting you, it's a bloke knocking your confidence every occasion. And it, it comes from the chimp paradox, obviously. The chimp paradox is where it comes from. But I, I gave it a different name because mm-hmm. and I think everyone's sort of chimp is different to, sure. to every person. And yes, that, you know, in, you read the books, you know, the theory of the chimp. And to the Mark Borden and the guy who I did a lot of work with in 2009, 2010 on it, um, you know, explained, and I, I just didn't like the word chimp because I thought it was too. Sure. I thought it was like too theory book, and I, uh, you know, from a you'd read it if you were studying it. Mm-hmm. And actually, the gimp to me just gave it a bit, a bit more clarity because he kind of he always was devil's advocate. He was always like trying to irritate you, and I didn't think a chimp does that. So um, that's why I called him the gimp. And yeah, you kind of my issues with him and uh, and everyone has issues with what so-called bloke, whatever you want to call him, and how you deal with him best. Uh, is was really it was a real key breakthrough for me and my cricket. And you even said it was down to um, helped with your longevity. So I, I've actually had Steve Peters on the pod. I've called mine Humphrey, incidentally. Oh. Um, so how do you deal with your gimp then? So what was what was the key for you? The, the, the biggest breakthrough. And I know this is going to sound so obvious now. Was not actually I, I when I first started playing cricket for England or started playing for Essex. Everyone's like he's a really mentally strong player. That was kind of what I've now. I never had the best shots in the world. I was never. Um, thing, but I was oh he's he, he's tough and stuff. And actually, in my mind, I didn't feel tough. And, I, and the, the gimp was causing me chaos in that he was always trying to take my confidence away. And I I spoke to boards the um, the shrink as I always call him that you know how can I get better at dealing? With? Give me what gives me real confidence. And I don't want some you know cliched stuff you read off you know mm. A level psychology. I want something better. And we, and he took he took a while to to come back to me. It took about eight months to come back to oh, me right. or something. And then, you know, he, The Confidence Gap was a book which he gave to me. And I read about 10, cha- 10 pages of it before I thought, oh, I, I get what you're now. I get that. I get the chimp paradox. You know, I get that. And we, then we started working around for about, you know, probably, probably about two years. But the first six months, we did lots and lots of work on it. And it actually coincided with the 2010-11 series. Oh, really? And, and I, I spent years trying to bat him away and trying to forget he was there, but it was more about just dealing with him and managing him, ex- yeah. accepting he's there, accepting he's going to be there, no matter how good mentally strong you are. Every time you put yourself in a, in a pressure situation or when you're judged batting or you're doing a presentation in, in front of your bosses or whatever, in front of clients, you're judged. And the gimp will always, always cause you an issue. It's how accepting it, accepting it and then for me in the batting like making sure he didn't have an impact on my batting and some days I won and some days he got the better of me and that is it's a constant battle and you're constant managing of it yeah so it's that limbic part of your brain that's essentially trying to sort of keep you safe isn't yeah, it yeah it's a fight and flight yeah. process back in the day but 
obviously now it's, you don't quite have that fight and flight thing. You're not worried about a bear chasing you. Sure. It's not quite that <laughs> thing. So to keep you alive, but it's that kind. It's that kind of thing. And then, but everyone is related. Everyone's is related to their job and what bothers them. Because something which bothers me yeah. might not bother you. So, yeah. and it's really important to to be aware of it. I think. Would you have conversations in your head with the gimp, or would you just let him rant? Or well, you only let him rant. You as on a batting side, on a purely batting side, you let him rant, and then as the bowler's running in, then it's the time to write. No, you've had your say. This is what I'm going to do. And it kind of on a really basic level, when the bowler's running in, I'd say commit and watch the ball because that's what I really wanted to do. If I did that, um, and I committed to what I was trying to do, and I watched the ball clear, if I got out or I got naught, if I got out or I played a good shot, as long as I did that then I was okay with myself. Even if I played a bad shot, did I commit to the bad shot? Of course it doesn't work all the time. Cricket's not one of those games where, of course, you're going to play a bad shot or you're going to nibble at a ball and you might miss it. But it's that's the game of cricket, but it's just more mentally that knew I was in a good frame of mind. Yeah, and you came out with a really interesting way of looking at it, which is that everyone has doubts, and you, you cited... Barack Obama. Yeah, so, yeah so, so, so when Boards told me that, I was like, no, he doesn't. Because he was like, show me something. He, he was obviously teaching me through it. And he was like, who do you think like doesn't have it? I said, well, President Obama's one of the best speakers I've ever heard. Whether you agree with his policies, it's not going into politics, but you telling me as a bloke who stood there and, and spoke, how many times he spoke on TV, you know, it was brilliant, wasn't he? He was oh, a really, really yeah. good speaker. Public speaking, really hard thing to do. And Boards was like, well, I bet he has it. No, he doesn't. Of course he doesn't. He's so good at it. And once I started to learn that, you know, and then we obviously went through other examples, it was like, ah. Oh. So if he had it, then yeah. you can still be mentally strong and have a gimp. Well, and that's a, that's a good way of thinking about it. Like everyone has it. We yeah. all ha- You'd be kind of wired wrong if you didn't have it, really. Yeah. That's sort of the way to look at it, isn't it? And um, you'd speak about as well, you're interested in kind of the psychology of batting collapses and, and when new partnerships happen. So you've, you've built a nice partnership. You, the guy you're batting with is out. And you talk about those words to watch out for, what they like, can't, won't, mustn't, and, and that shift in that moment. Yeah, so the batting collapse is, always, is, a, is a fascinating one because actually, I don't know, England now are 70 for two or what they were. Actually, they lost a wicket right. and now they've stopped a collapse. But no one talks about them stopping a collapse, they just build another partnership. But when you do collapse, they say, well, how can you not stop it? Well, actually, they've stopped it today. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. they haven't lost three wickets in three balls or three yeah. wickets in two overs. Um, but I was just talking about, you know, you're cruising in a partnership, you're seven, putting on 60, 70, 80, and you're the in-bats when you're both on 30. Suddenly he gets out. For no apparent reason, you start to feel the pressure. And that's just an external thing. That's the gimp raising up. That's the something which shouldn't bother you, but does. And then it's just being aware of it and then making sure it doesn't take you away from what you meant to do, which is next ball. What for, for me, watch the ball, commit, watch the ball. And you, again, say something nice about when you're getting out in the 90s, you use almost harsh terms and so you've failed a basic test. Well, I did, I did a, that one at right, okay. Mitchell. Because start. you were controlled, you say you were controlled by your environment. Yeah, I got, I got going back a little bit of context, I on 96 against... Um, Australia at Lords, and we're struggling in the game. And Mitch Marsh is bowling in the 78th over, like two overs for the new ball. And I was, I was worried about getting my hundred before the new ball, and played a, an aggressive shot I didn't need to. And you know, I got, you know, I was an experienced cricketer, and I got, I don't seem very, very un- inexperienced, and was worried about something which thing. And ironically, the first ball, the second innings, the new ball, Mitch will start bowling on legs, I hit it for four. And you think, well, if only I'd done that, I'd have got 100. And I know it doesn't work like that, but yeah. it just, just, it's just sometimes something which, you know, shouldn't affect you does affect you. And that's why the Gimp won that day. Something else that um, you reflect a lot on in the book is hard work. 
and you say a really nice quote, which is one that particularly any young people, players, people generally would do really well to pay heed to, which is all the greats have hard work in common. And you're a grafter, aren't you? Yeah, I, always I, have been. I've always have been, always will be, because that's I've I'm not given I haven't been given this talent which is so much better than everyone else's. I've I've made that difference up by working hard. Now everyone does. Why Steve Smith? Like suddenly if you ask the Australian coaches now who's hit the most ball on that balls on that Australian tour, Steve Smith will be out there by miles. By yeah. miles, do you reckon? I, I know that for a yeah, fact, and, yeah. and it's not surprising he's the best player in the world. And I'm not saying if you hit a billion balls a day, you're going to be the best player ever, but it'll help you improve. Mm. I mean, you do need other stuff as well. But hard work, you know, I used to, you know, at 14, I, I swam twice a week, I ran once a week with the dog, you know what I mean? I was, I was always doing above and beyond. And I think probably towards the end, when that last 12 months where I... You know that that will to do that was a real indication for me. It was time to. Oh, it was waning. Go. You could feel it. Yeah. Waning well, it, a bit. Okay. So when you're waning, it's talking. You know that two or three percent. Uh, and you know I, I tried to fight it. I try, I didn't just suddenly. Oh, that's it. I'm done. You know there was conversations with boards about stuff to, to try and help it. And eventually just got to stage actually. You know the horrible dig in the well, dig into the well, which are not great. I know it's the title of my, the first chapter, but I'm not a massive fan of it because it's a bit cliched. But it's only so many times you can go there and you can drag yourself before eventually you go. Do you know what? Uh, yeah, that's it. Something that reflects that work ethic you have. You talk about that your five thirty a.m. runs and enjoying it because it's about doing it when you don't want to do it. Yeah, and uh, that I've always done that. Like always been up early. It, it, when the kids came along, it meant that I was back then for the kids to wake up. And uh, I love being awake when, you know, not all the time. There's times when you don't want to, but you know, the, the time to spend with the children. I didn't have, the, especially when the first couple of years with when I was captain of the one dares as well. Um, when Elsie was really young, then yeah, it gave me an opportunity to be there around for that. And but. It was that case. You can do a comfortable run at 10.30 after you've had breakfast, had a coffee and stuff. But actually, you get more out of those hot, you know, dragging yourself out of bed because actually there's times in the cricket where it is uncomfortable and you're forced to go into an uncomfortable environment, walking out to bat with half an hour to go, like Rory Burns and Joe Jenny had to do yesterday when the Aussie bowlers have been on there, sat there, nothing to do, knowing how important. They've got everything to win. You could only lose. It's uncomfortable. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. But, you know, you've dug, you've gone, your body's used to it. You're training your brain to be in an uncomfortable situation. So dragging yourself out of bed at 5.30 when it's cold, wet and horrible and going for a run is uncomfortable. It's as uncomfortable as you can make, like, you can make something like that. So it's yeah. just those little bits I've all, I always did. So you would encourage people who want to maximise their ability to, to actively almost seek out making yourself at uncomfortable? Certain, at certain times, yeah. So sometimes you train, you want to train to make comfortable training uncomfortable. You want to do the bat, like if you're bouncer practice and stuff, for example, it's uncomfortable. It's not pleasant. You don't want to do it, but you have to do it because if, if everything's training is always easy, then you're like... When it gets hard in the game, you're not you're not used to being under stress. You know, so sometimes, so Andy Flower brought in training and the, you'd do lots of physical stuff before you batted. You're absolutely knackered. Then you had to go and bat. You know, it was you don't can't do it all the time, but you can certainly do some of it. But the running was just it's just what, something which made me tick. Now, does if Ben Stokes didn't run at five thirty, but he did all his training at six in the afternoon or six in the evening, it doesn't matter. It's just that's just what made me. I like doing it. We can agree, you know, hard work. Yeah, I'd, I'd, however, however it works for you, yeah. hard work, you need it. And very formative for you was 
so you obviously at school and doing the choir as well. And you, another lovely quote that stuck with me is that, oh, I mean, it's not yours, it's an old one, which is, if you've got something need doing, give it to a busy man. And you, you learn from an early age because of that choir that you were you were just busy so you had like only slithers of time where you weren't doing something uh, yes that's a it's true i without blowing smoke up my own whatever yes i i was busy and for that was training from you know if you go to the choir school you from like you wake up you have an hour before school you do school you have an hour before the service sing the service at six o'clock and then you have a bit of tea and then you do homework and you go to bed i mean if you're doing that as a nine-year-old or an eight-year-old then you're fairly used to hard work, and uh, you know, and then it goes back to the bit of the farm. Yeah, the hard work. If you get a job done on the sheep, you you have to do it. There's no like shortcuts. You do it or you don't do it. Yeah. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, you talk about 16 hours of farm work and, and it, you do it until it's done. Now, Alice, there's something else you are obviously very well known for is your concentration and your ability to, you know, concentrate for long periods of time. And you say the art of concentration is the ability to concentrate and then not concentrate on concentrating could you just explain that a little bit <laughs> yeah it's a mouthful the yes as a batter you actually only have to concentrate for quite a short space of time probably just before the bowler gets to the umpire to when he lets go of it judge a run yes or no then don't have to do it it's a bit like a golfer how many how long a golfer actually has to concentrate on a round on a five-hour round it's probably only probably six minutes if that less than that probably just before he swings and all that stuff so um so the batting like you can't concentrate for six hours straight you cannot you physically wear yourself out so the skill of being able to switch on and off enough and we're not talking when you're off you're not talking 
properly off you're just talking just down enough to to allow you not to take too much mental strain to do it so you know the routine of batting you'd concentrate and then just be able to relax a little bit and probably listen to the gimp a little bit when he's there but then then be able to switch off and, and concentrate again and that was kind of getting trying to get into that rhythm of concentration was 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 very important where did this come from again is this kind of innate in you because so you talk about for example you had your little routine and you go wander off to square yeah. leg and sort of come back, refocus. So was this something you worked on through your career? Do you think this is something that can be developed and to what degree is it? In yeah, you can definitely develop it. I actually think the art of concentrating, I, it goes back to the, my singing days, really, that from a very early age, I was used to performing. I know this sounds silly, performing, I know it's a choir, but performing under pressure. You're performing in front of people and it's a very different thing, but if you're used to doing it, to sing music or to play music, you have to concentrate. You have to, you know, follow the music, make sure you're singing in time, make sure you're singing the right note. If you concentrate, you get it right. If you don't, you get it wrong. And I think from an early age, I was always training my brain. And uh, to do that, and then when you then go into cricket, because you're used to doing and performing in front of people, it became, I was easy. I was probably quite a long way ahead of people, you know, 14, 15, because of that kind of the skill I had kind of ingrained in me from the choir school. Would any of your teammates sort of ask you for advice? Like, Because I always think of, like, in Australia, yeah. you know, you're under the blazing heat and you were just out there, what, for essentially days at a time. Would would people come and speak to you about that? I, I think people just, like, have their own little methods of doing it. And people spoke about their method. You know, so Jonathan Trott was all about batting in a partnership of five. So he his way of concentrating, yes, he had all his his, like... Ticks. You know, yeah, ticks. Yeah, like Steve Smith. He yeah. had his ticks. He'd make sure he marked his guard perfectly, mm. all that kind of stuff. That was his way of getting his, himself ready and him to concentrate. And then, let's if we're, say, on 82, let's get to 85. If we got to 85, let's get to 90. That was his way of keeping everything in check. So he wasn't just focused on his himself, his focus on the team as well, and also, therefore, concentrating. Yeah. So we kind of like, that's what happened. It wasn't like, people would say, well, what do you do? And that's what I did yeah. but as I said it's a bit like everyone's gimp or everyone's chimp or everyone's thing yeah. you can't teach the same way to that you have to be aware of everyone's method yeah. and you're aware of your own method and what works so you have to find out yourself yeah okay. you can't like you definitely can't like say that's the way to do it no although that that method that Jonathan Trott does of essentially chunking it down that is something that sort of keeps coming up so you wouldn't chunk it down you wouldn't look I, I, like... I actually went through stages like sometimes with Trotty I, I, I really enjoy I let him do that I was like and then sometimes I needed it for myself because you, you know Steve Smith spoke yesterday said I had a bad 20 minutes you know I could have got out three times and did get out but then it was obviously noble of Jack Leach you go through stages and that's, you know, humans don't, you, it's not perfect all the time. And you, you do go through stages, you know your mind's wandering, but you can't get it in or you can't get that rhythm of batting. And you're trying to use methods to help you. But, you know, some days you just don't. And that's the thing. When your mind was wandering then and it was all over, perhaps, you know, you are looking thinking, oh, is that yeah. someone in the crowd or, you know, is that a beach ball, whatever it is, you know, what would what would you do in those really tough moments? Well, for me, the actual concentration never was more just that was I handling the gimp well. That was my my thing. The actual concentration washing the ball wasn't really an issue. But for me, it was always the rhythm of batting, trying to find that rhythm of that day. And because my technique had a lot of moving parts, um, that was always the battle for me, really. And you kept it very simple, didn't you? What was your, your mantra? Com commit was... and watch the ball. And then if I try to break the ba the basics down, can I hit this ball straight where back the road comes from? That's kind of it. It's, you know, you have a checkpoint of head. As a left-hander, your head tends to go a little bit offside. Is it going back down the pitch? 
is it for me you know, am I falling over am I hitting the ball straight just as a little checkpoint but Steve Smith proved he don't always have to do all that yeah and then I mean even at lunch though, so you'd have your walk off do that little uh, routine that you had between balls but then as well you'd say you'd go off at lunch and you know you'd chat to people but then come back and, and you know successfully refocus yeah but not that long before because it's a waste of energy there's no point getting focused at, if lunch if you're back on at 20 to 20 to 2 for example never getting focused at half past 1 mm. do you know what I mean you, you just just that last it's only that ever that last couple of minutes I was always trying to be relaxed before yeah. and talking chatting away but you're always in the little bit you're always in the moment you never you never away when you're in you're never away from it that much but trying to relax in that 40 minutes was as important just so long, so long as I was aware come one or two minutes before that I, I, I got to try to get back into that so obviously you were captain uh, and we're going to chat a little bit about that but you said some really interesting stuff about how a successful team, and that could be any team, functions. You know, we work. If you work in an office, or you work on a building site, or you know, you're in the England cricket team, whatever. And the thing that really stuck out to me was so obviously you had the windy shocker 2009, and then you had that meeting. Addy Flowers fairly new to it at that point, and you sit down as a squad and. Everyone's kind of allowed, it, it, it was a safe space, wasn't it? So people were allowed to air uncomfortable views without fear of retribution. And that kind of airing was key, wasn't it? So would you really, yeah. Yeah, but you've got to, it's a, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous uh, exercise to do. And one you can't do too often as a, you know, if you spoke to Andy Flower now, he, he, he would have been very nervous going into that because you don't know where it's going to go. When you open out any meeting as a leader, diplomatically let anyone else's democracy anyone speak you don't know where it goes because someone might have a beef about something which is to- you think is totally irrelevant and then someone else has a beef totally opposite you then you've got a massive clash right so it's, it is a dangerous thing but for that that precise moment in time for that team we needed it because there was underlying issues because in terms of just on a bit of history that was the first game after um, KP wasn't captain after he he kind of got sacked and so did Peter Moore. So there's a lot of things bubbling under and sometimes to move forward, you do need the big clean out and the big everything off its chest and then move forward. Uh, uh, and occasionally, other times we did it, we did it, but we knew that when the team was a bit more established and people were uh, a bit more experienced and we'd have been together a lot more as a team, you know, you knew it was okay. But that was a dangerous. That was a dangerous meeting, but it worked really well for us. And actually, people did speak really honestly from themselves, and it was really important. And it was clearly a catalyst for what followed. Yeah, the catalyst was that that kind of can't get any worse. We can't get any worse, otherwise we won't be doing it again as a team. Other people will be taking our place, and then the catalyst of the the common goal of becoming number one in the world, which started in April that April in two thousand nine. Um, was such a, a vital meeting run by Andy Andy Strauss and Nathan Lehman. In that meeting, the one that I just mentioned um, as well, Andy Flower commended you because you stepped up and, well, you were vulnerable, weren't you? He, he said spoke about your you being vulnerable in the meeting and the power of vulnerability. Yeah, it was, it was just probably the first time everyone had, you know, again, like I've, I've always put up a fairly, you know, like a, a glass wall, like... You know, you don't show too much emotion, and that and that meeting, I was, you know, I was right for my place. I was right. I wasn't scoring the runs. I should be, if I'm not careful. You know, people, are someone else playing. I didn't want to give my place up. And sometimes hearing it, thinking, well, that's okay, because if he felt like that, 
I feel like that. And you know, you go back a bit more recent uh, history. That probably that happened in that 2019 World Cup with after England lost to Sri Lanka. You heard mm. about there was a meeting and that people aired their grievances, aired their, and they spoke of their vulnerability, saying, "Called the pressure of a home World Cup, all that kind of stuff." I don't know what was said in the meeting, but just the little snapshots you're getting now. Oh, I was getting concerned that you know I wasn't playing the way I wanted to play because I was right if we knocked out and. The, suddenly they kind of got everything off their chest, regrouped um, and played well. Uh, and they need, so sometimes you do need it. But of course, remember, there's all those good meetings, there'll be bad meetings where it goes totally astray. And that's when you need your good leadership to be able to run those meetings. Yeah, but that vulnerability does seem to be a really good way for people to sort of be able to connect. Because like you say, if, if it's, if you admit that you're not doing what you feel like you should be doing, or if you feel that, you know, you say that you feel a little uncomfortable or whatever, Again, it's like people might look at you and think, oh, he doesn't feel like that. But knowing that you do, well, I think other people feel OK. Anytime in a, in a dressing room, an alpha male environment, which a dressing room is, and you're playing sport, it's very much like that. A sport can be, can be. Um, quite a ruthless business, you know. There's, you know, if it, like you only look at I don't know, the Rugby World Cup squad's just been announced, and people who've played 70, 80 games have been a huge part of that journey. Even Dylan and Hartley, the captain, you know, almost his side, Six months before the World Cup, his goal, he's no longer in the squad. Eddie Jones said, well, actually, no, I know you've been injured a bit. You're no longer your surplus to requirements. And that's the harsh nature of professional sports. And you know, we're not you're not asking for sympathy. It's just what happens and the effect that has on a person. That mm. is just, that is just, it's just interesting and can be, can be quite tough. But that's just the way it is. Another thing that um, uh, Andy Flower did, so uh, for a bit of context as well, was it you said 918 days after that meeting you know you reached world number one uh, which was an incredible and I remember that you know, like I said I was charting that journey very fortunate in myself and something significant that Andy with your help obviously did was connecting with the bloodline of of English cricket so making it about more than you know bigger than just yourself so thinking getting in touch with the history and this is something that, that comes up I've spoken to someone who studied the All Blacks for example and they, they did this can you just speak a bit about that yeah I mean it's just like all sides you end up you know you you go through periods of success and stuff and sometimes do you look past is it just all about winning and you know 2013 Ashes was quite an example where we won the Ashes series, but we'd lost the connection with the public a bit. Um, and, and I think it's just like Andy's obviously with his history and anyone, anyone who kind of stands up to a, a regime of your country, you know, is worth, you know, he's got good views and values yeah, about yeah. life. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and he was just important that we started to understand the cap as well. And, and, we, and he thought it would be beneficial for us. And, and a lot, I know a lot of teams have done it in the past, and it comes from a little bit of that legacy book. We felt it was important to continue, and now you see little traditions going back into into the in the England side, like old players handing out handing out caps and stuff, and just trying to make the experience of playing for England special, and also appreci- appreciating yeah. the history of it. Absolutely, I mean, it clearly on that occasion clearly had the desired effect. Now you then were captain for a long time, very successful captain, won some uh, fabulous series. Had your difficulties as well, obviously, 
You talk about a, a three-card trick in managing a dressing room, you know, being able to accommodate big characters, differences celebrated, and yet intimate as well. This, again, is something that is universal. Like a manager, yeah. let's say, you have all these different characters. So what did you learn about managing a group of different characters like that? Uh, uh, that it's a challenge, it can be. Uh, we, I was very lucky, and I think most England captains are lucky, that 99% of the players, 99% of the time, the motivation is is always there. You know, you're not... Sometimes looking at an office staff thinking he's, he's, he's not in a job, he's particularly happy, he's done it for 15 years yeah, and he's you know, done the same thing over again. His motivation isn't quite the same as a bloke who's trying to make his way to playing cricket for England. You know, the motive, that is, that's there and we, you never had to write about that. It's just more trying to get the best out of people at all times. And, and of course, do you get it right? No, you don't get it right. But do you, can you make a difference as a leader? And I think that if you can make a difference to certain people and to the, the team that it kind of operates above kind of the sum of all its parts, then you then you are making a difference, aren't you, as, as a leadership? Yeah. And there were certain things we did, certain things we got wrong, certain things we got right. Um, but that, the challenge of captaincy is amazing. And actually the sad thing about captaincy is you're the best captain right at the end of your career almost yeah. out of your, because of all the experience you had. But because it's quite a... It's a, quite a demanding job and quite uh it takes it out of you a lot that you can't do it for sh massive periods of no. time you talk about actually the loneliness of the leadership some press conferences you said you said that they could be brutal but what was interesting was first of all you talk about not never reacting impulsively which i think is a, a really valuable lesson and also listening to your own intuition because obviously you've got particularly ex-pros, but everyone's got an opinion, haven't they? Yeah, and, uh, but then also the balance of that. My first couple of years, I was very insular as captain. And then the last couple, I was a lot more open and, and used other people's opinion. And it helped me a lot more. So I wish I had done that but earlier on in my captaincy career. But I'd, I'd been insular all my life, my batting, and did it all my way because it's your game. Whatever coach you got, you've got to go out and walk in the middle. You've got to go and do it. So you've got to trust it. And, and if you make mistakes, you can only blame yourself. So... I wish I'd have done that from an earlier age. The loneliness of captain, I, I, you just sometimes make decisions which aren't easy. And and then sometimes people say, oh, that's the decision of that is, uh, oh, he's made the wrong decision. But the hours you put into that decision, no one sees. And I always try, I hope, you know, I hope every decision I try to make was for the good of the English cricket team, not for the good of me. And, of course, you upset people along the way. And, and I, as long as, you know, the players are... You know, the players were brilliant. There was, the players were brilliant with my captaincy all the time. I always felt I had the support of, of the dressing room and that was, was important to me. But there was, of course, you, it's the loneliness. I'm not sure. I never felt lonely, but you do get... It's a tough job. It is a tough job. And I'm sure that that's, again, leadership can apply kind of across yeah. the board. Well, something that I, again, really enjoyed was it's well documented, for example, the sledging that can happen between the Aussies and English, yeah. particularly, you know, in years gone by. I really like what you said about the Kiwis, you know, where they came to this point of sort of saying, oh, they, they tried it, but then realised, oh, it's not us, you know, and yeah. they didn't take themselves too seriously. They said that it felt awkward. And I thought that really spoke to the power of authenticity. Well, I mean, Tim Southey, who played Essex, a bit for Essex uh, for a little bit and became yeah, a good friend. And guy you play, I played a lot against, actually. Our careers, you know, pretty much the same, you know, he's still going, but played a lot against him and... We spoke about it and he was like, yeah, I, I try to sledge, I try to be horrible. 
because that's what great some great bowlers have done. Like McGrath was always chuntering away yeah, at the yeah, batter. You know, yeah. Jimmy needs it to get to a certain level. If he goes above it, he doesn't bowl well. If he goes below it, he operates doesn't operate as well. So he tries to find his but And for Tim, who you know, quite a laid back Kiwi, he tried it and he ended up bowling dreadfully, and then got smashed everywhere. And it's like, well, it just felt awkward, unnatural. And then the kind of their whole team thing was actually, yeah, we don't need to sledge. We'll go out. We'll try as hard as you could possibly try. We'll chase every ball to fit. We'll play the smile on the face because that's what Kiwis are like. Mm. And that also, you're right, the authenticity was really important. And um, and we've, we earned a lot of the, from that lesson, actually, in that 2015 series, which we took into the ashes. And, you know, for, like we we had nothing to hide from that Australia side. So we decided to, after the first game, invite them into the dressing room to see... You know, was it a bit of a trick? I don't know, but we, we said, well, come and dress and have a drink with us, win or lose. And they, they declined it. And I, I don't know if it got into their heads or whatever, but it was like, we got to the stage, like, we were quite we we're quite happy in ourselves. We're the underdogs, we just we'll go out and play and we did pretty well. Everyone's different and yeah. it's finding what works for you and not thinking just because someone else does it, it's right for you. No. Right, farming gives you your perspective. An antidote to the shallowness of celebrity culture and the scrutiny of top-class sport. Now, this is a lesson everyone can get something from. So we are in this hyper-connected time. But yet you and anyone could get so much value by being able to disconnect through nature. And clearly that's something that you do particularly well. For example... The week before there were 294 against India in 2011 involved several successive 16-hour days preparing for the tame sheep fair. Yeah, we're, um, I was averaging five, so things weren't going quite so well. Uh, yeah, and just went back to the farm and, yeah, we, 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 it was a busy time of the year for us to sell the sheep at tame and just, you just get stuck in. And the cricket, the cricket and the farming for me, it was just, I did my cricket and I trained hard and then that release of out of the bubbles was so important. Now, when you're in the bubble, when you're in the Joe Root as he is now, yeah, every decision he feels he's making is getting scrutiny, he's getting, he feels that every, like someone's slagging him off, he will feel it. However, he probably he thinks the whole world is doing it. Actually, for me, going like out of it, you realise that it's not. Like, you can have a day's cricket and someone on the farm, I just used my, didn't know what the score was. He didn't know what the score didn't know what was mattering. It didn't matter to them. It mattered when they got home and saw it, but it just proved to me that if cricket all finished that day in 2010, 11, 12, any of those days, there was a life there waiting if I wanted to have it. And having yeah. that perspective um, really helped. It felt like it helped. It helped my uh, longevity. Yeah, so connecting to nature, I mean, that certainly seems to be something that anyone can... Well, I don't, I, look, again, it's horses for courses. Someone couldn't think anything worse than doing 16-hour sheet work or... But we're naturally inclined to, to, to be connected to nature, aren't we? To well, some, it may not be farming, like, but... Yeah, it, yeah. But... I, look, I, I don't know. Like, for me, I'm not sure about the connecting to nature, but for me, it was a... You know, I love my character. I like hard work. I like being outside. I like working the dogs. It's, like, suited. And sometimes I like working on my own. I like, you know, go. You, can you go and do that work, please? Can you go and do it? You're on your own. It's just you. If you don't do it, you don't do it, and you you don't get the job done. You can't rely on anyone else. And I just I just enjoy that. And you know, the coincidence was that I got my highest score ever the week after. And Alice's father-in-law said, "Don't need to bother Nets. Just come with me. I'll do that, and then we'll we'll have you around. So I have to do less work, and you'll score more runs." And you compare farming and nature. To sport, you said something. That a similar nature can be both wonderful, you know, and cruel. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, we'll we, you've seen those wildlife programs in in Africa, and unfortunately, for certain animals to survive, they they need to take advantage of other animals, and it is cruel and it's horrendous. And sport can be sport can be, you know, you saw, I don't know, Jimmy Anderson in two thousand and fourteen, who 
you know, battered, batters are not a batter, batters surviving mowing until the second to last ball. And then he got out and we lost the test match. And he's, he's in tears because he feels he's let the whole team down, yet he's batted for an hour. He's so close to something. And, and he feels like he's, that is a cruel part of sport, as, especially when he gets so tight. Or Stephen Finn getting dropped on, on Christmas Day, even though he's leading wicket taker in the series, because, you know, he was going, part of our game plan was to score less run, to go, you know, squeeze the Australians, not going at run, uh, go above three runs and over. He was going at four runs and over. It wasn't part of the plan, yet he was leading wicket taker. It's like saying a batter, you're scoring too slowly, but take, but scoring too slowly for the plan, but you are, are leading run scoring. That's what kind of effect happened. That is a cruel thing to do on Christmas Day, but that's what sport can, can yeah. do. That's why I think sport, you know, is such an analogy for life. People love it because you just don't know what's going to happen, do you? That's... Well, something that I particularly enjoyed was you talking about what you love about cricket. And again, I think this sort of comes back to life. And now that you're able to look back and reflect on everything you achieved and more importantly, in many ways, who you achieved it with. And you talk about the, the power of shared experiences with Stuart Broad and, and your bezer, Jimmy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm so privileged to have spent so much time with those two and other, and other folk along the way. And obviously, Jimmy is everyone's well known. And uh, kind of how two op- totally opposite people can can get on so well. Like, you know, Northerner, open the bowler, Southerner, open the batting. You even go private school, public school. You know, you can look so different, like one funny me, one unboring lame. You know, you can, <laughs> you can look so, you could, you know, so different and yet yeah. get on so well. And, and I think you got to a stage in our relationship, you could go to each other's room. Well, he always used to come to my room and put the bill on mine and not talk the whole evening, eat dinner and walk out and go, that was a great evening. Cheers, buddy. See you, next. See you, yeah. Joe, see you in the morning. And it, um, yeah, and to share to share our cricketing lives together. Like Jimmy's a great of English cricket. To be lucky enough to play with him for that long, it's very special. And to be tight with him. And the beautiful, another beautiful little lesson then is you know how tight you were, how much love you have for him. Yet your your relationship got off to a slightly inauspicious yeah, start yeah, by the, him. Not the greatest start, <laughs> but also just shows. I think the, that's why I love like the dressing room. Where so many different people from so many different backgrounds, cultures can make a brilliant team yeah and you know like ben stokes big tattooed man sometimes shaven head if whatever he like you think oh he's in a great and actually couldn't be further than truth and never judging a book by his cover the dressing room sums that up perfectly because yeah. you, you know you see someone on tv is so different to what he is behind closed doors i'm just incredibly lucky to have had the experience i've had there's some tough times of course there's tough times in it what everyone does but yeah, it was a, a very, very special 12 years. So it's about loving what you do. Despite being someone who grafts as hard as you do, 16 hour days on the farm, ridiculous batting shifts, you also have said that you've never done a day's work in your life because Absolutely. you've loved everything you do. Absolutely. I've never had that feeling of going, oh God, here we go again, unless we were bowling at Steve Smith. <laughs> Sir Alistair Cook on Don't Tell Me the Score, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Don't Tell Me The Score. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation and I would, of course, be delighted to hear your thoughts, ideas and questions. Do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. I do really appreciate you listening and if you could leave a kind rating and review, I would be sincerely grateful. All that remains is for me to say I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, thank you and goodbye. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.